Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter uh, 18. Uh, John chapter 18, for those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the gospel of John. And as we continue in our study of this gospel this morning, we come to John chapter 18. And uh, we're, we're going to start in verse 12, even though that's a verse that we ended with um, last week. And the title of the message is Tried and Denied. Tried and Denied. We saw last week how Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we saw how Peter lashed out with a sword to protect Jesus from arrest and ended up cutting off the ear of the high priest slave. We saw how Jesus told Peter to put his sword away and how Jesus allowed himself to be arrested and bound and taken away. And this is where we're going to pick up in the narrative today. In John chapter 18, verse 13, through the rest of the chapter, we're going to see Jesus brought to the former high priest, whose name is Annas, and to the current high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, and then to Pilate on his journey toward the cross. And interwoven through those movements is the story of Peter's three denials of Jesus, three denials that all four of the gospel writers are careful to include in their narrative of Christ's suffering and his death. Imagine yourself being Peter, and imagine that every time the story of Jesus' crucifixion is told, the story of your own failures is interwoven into the fabric of that story. Imagine that. And I say imagine with a little bit of irony because it is actually the case for all of us that every time the story of Christ's suffering and death is told, the story of our own sin and failures is intertwined in that story, right? As Paul says in Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that what? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I hope that all of us, as we look at our text this morning, will see ourselves in Peter and be left with a greater appreciation of all that Jesus endured for our salvation. In fact, I think one of the key reasons that John intertwines the story of Peter's denials with Christ's suffering is because Peter's denials were actually a part of Christ's suffering. Yes, Jesus suffered greatly at the hands of his enemies, but he also suffered denial by Peter. Peter's denials of Jesus were a part of the cross that Jesus had to bear just as he bore our own sins in his body while on the cross. And the more we appreciate this fact, the more we will appreciate the power and the meaning and the grace of the cross, right? 
As John Stott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us, unquote. Ultimately, John tells us the story of Peter's denials to set us up to appreciate the contrasting faithfulness of Jesus and to set us up to appreciate the forgiveness of sins and the transformation that ended up coming to Peter as a result of Christ's suffering. Forgiveness and transformation that is available for us to sinners like you and me. So as we look at our passage this morning, if you have the hard copy of the notes with you, and I hope you do, we're going to observe four developments in John's account of Jesus being tried by his enemies and denied by Peter. Four developments in John's account of Jesus being tried by his enemies and denied by Peter. And the first development we begin to see in verse 12 And let's word it this way, the arresting officers lead Jesus to the father-in-law of the man who wanted Jesus dead. The arresting officers lead Jesus to the father-in-law of the man who wanted Jesus dead. Observe what John says happens in verses 12 and 13. So the Roman cohort And the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, this is the first time we've met Annas in John's gospel, so let me tell you just a little bit about this man. Annas actually served as the official high priest from AD 6 to AD 15, but he was removed from that office by the man who was the Roman governor uh, in the year AD 15. According to the Old Testament, though, the high priesthood was a position that was held for life. And so even after his removal by the Roman governor, Annas continued to wield enormous influence over the religious life of Jerusalem and of all Israel, and he was viewed as something of a high priest emeritus until his dying day. Over the next 50 years after his removal from uh, office, Annas ended up having five of his sons serve as high priest, and one grandson and one son-in-law named Caiaphas. And it is Caiaphas who is the official high priest at the time that these events in John 18 take place. That's a dynasty, right? It would not be a stretch at all to say that Annas was the wizard behind the curtain of Israel's religious life and even politics. As the commentator Leon Morris says, he was in all probability the real power in the land. From extra biblical history, we actually learn that Annas was a very proud and fabulously wealthy man who had gotten rich off of his position as high priest. And his family was notorious for its greed 
and corruption, so much so that even the Jewish Talmud looked back and said, and I quote, woe to the family of Annas, unquote, because of his and his family's corruption. And this is the man that Jesus is being brought to right now after his arrest. Look at verse 13 again, where John says that those who arrested Jesus led him to Annas first for or because he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. That Annas was the father-in-law of Caiaphas is not some incidental fact in this story. It is offered as the very reason that Jesus was brought to Annas first. Annas and Caiaphas were two peas in a pod. And the very fact that Jesus is being brought to Annas right now reveals that Annas was involved in ordering Jesus' arrest and may very well have been the instigator of that arrest. To help us appreciate what Jesus will be up against as he comes before Annas, John reminds us of something about his son-in-law, Caiaphas, saying in verse 14, look at the text, now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. And this takes us back to John chapter 11, when the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin were wringing their hands over Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead. In a state of panic, they said to one another in John chapter 11, verse 47, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Rather than believing in this one who can raise the dead, these men are terrified that they're going to lose their privilege positions of wealth and power as a result of everyone following Jesus instead of them. But in response to their words of panic, Caiaphas said to his colleagues in verse 49 and 50, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John goes on to explain in that passage that Caiaphas' words were truer than even he realized, even from a gospel standpoint. But John wants us to know that Caiaphas spoke these words with evil, sinister motives, suggesting to his colleagues that Jesus is going to need to be killed. We know this is true because in the very next verse, in John 11, verse 53, John says, So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. These men now view it as their patriotic duty to kill Jesus in order to preserve their nation and preserve their place as rulers over this nation And they were influenced in this direction by the son-in-law of Annas. Caiaphas and Annas are of the same spirit. And as John tells us in verse 13, it is Annas 
whom Jesus is being brought before right now. John is going to pick up here with Jesus before Annas in, in a moment, but for now he changes the scene to Peter, which leads us to the second development in John's account of Jesus being tried by his enemies and denied by Peter. Number two, let's word this second development this way. Peter utters his first denial of Jesus. Peter utters his first denial of Jesus. The other gospel writers talk about how all the disciples fled the scene of Jesus' arrest, but it seems that Peter and another disciple regained their bearings and ended up finding their way to where Jesus was, to where Jesus was taken to such an extent that John says in verse 15, look at the text, that Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now, not everyone is convinced of this, but I would agree with most commentators who believe this other disciple is whom? John. This is very much like John, not to mention his own name in a situation like this in his gospel account, especially given the description that follows where John describes this other nameless disciple in verse 15 saying, look at the text, now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. Whoever this nameless disciple was, we learn here that he was known to the high priest. The high priest knew him by name. And if this is John, which it probably is, this would likely be because there was a family connection of some sort But whoever this disciple of Jesus was, he had no trouble getting inside the courtyard of the high priest. But look at verse 16, poor Peter, where John says, but Peter was standing at the door outside because Peter didn't have the credentials. He was not known to the high priest like this other nameless disciple was. So observe what this other disciple of Jesus does in verse 16. The text says, so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. And once Peter is brought inside this courtyard area, something happens very swiftly. Look at verse 17 where the text says, then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. The slave girl's question is worded in a way that expects a negative answer, but she is probably speaking ironically with a roll of her eyes, saying to Peter, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And notice how the slave girl uses the word also. Evidently, she knows that this other unnamed disciple is one of Jesus' disciples, and she's saying to Peter, you are not also Jesus' disciple like this other guy is, are you? That's essentially her question. Earlier this evening, 
Peter had heard Jesus' predictions that he would be denying him three times before the rooster crows. And Peter, upon hearing that, was probably expecting some big, hairy test that would come practically with the label that this is a big test. Peter little imagined that his first test would come from a slave girl asking him if he was one of Jesus' disciples. At the end of verse 17, we learn that Peter responded to her question by saying, I am not. Just a simple deception, quietly uttered. And once Peter uttered this lie, he has now put himself in a situation where he will have to keep on lying to keep up the pretense that he is not a disciple of Jesus. And as we all know from experience, we rarely ever get to tell a lie once, right? One lie ends up necessitating another lie and then another. And that's what's going to happen to Peter on this evening I love what Carl Laney, the commentator, says about Peter's failure here, saying, and I quote, we tend to be hard on Peter for his denials, but who among us has not had a similar failing? Peter was facing a dangerous situation. He panicked and he lied. Many of us have lied rather than be embarrassed or discovered, unquote. Is that not true? I know it's true in my life. Now, why would Peter give this kind of answer to none other than a slave girl? Is it because he's afraid of her? Well, partly, but there was another reason that we learn about in verse 18, where John says, look at the text, now the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal Fire, And I want to encourage you to underline the words charcoal fire, because we will come back to that by the time we're done today. Now, the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire, for it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing and warming himself. And John wants us to realize that this was the setting in which Peter denied that he was a disciple of Jesus, and it will be the setting of his coming denials as the passage unfolds. This is tragic cowardice displayed by a man whom Jesus has shown incredible love and patience over the previous three years. And it's all the sadder when we consider what is happening to Jesus inside the house of Annas. And this leads us to the third development in John's account of Jesus being tried by his enemies and denied by Peter. Let's word it this way. Annas and his officers subject Jesus to unjust treatment. Annas and his officers subject Jesus to unjust treatment. At this point, the scene changes back to Jesus who has been brought before Annas and observe what happens in verse 19. The high priest, that's Annas, uh, though he's not officially the high priest, he is the high priest emeritus. 
The high priest, Annas, then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now, to appreciate what's happening here, you need to recognize that according to Jewish law, after you arrest someone, you are supposed to inform them of the crime that they had committed that you are arresting them for, and then you were to hold a trial, and in that trial, you were supposed to listen to witnesses for the accused and against the accused, and then give the accused a chance to defend himself against the charges that you have put before him. Yet here, in this case, Annas has Jesus arrested and bound and brought to him. And what does he do next? He doesn't state the charges against Jesus. He states no grounds for Jesus' arrest. Instead, he wants to question Jesus with the hope of getting self-incriminating information from Jesus after the arrest. That's backwards. So he's asking, tell me about your disciples. Where are they? How many of these disciples do you have? What have you been teaching them? Have you been teaching them subversive things with the intent to overthrow us and to overthrow Rome? Actually, on one level, Annas has good reason to be very concerned about Jesus' teaching because Jesus has been saying things like, I am the light of the world, and I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the bread of life. Jesus didn't simply go around teaching moral platitudes. His teaching was centered on himself and involved staggering claims like, I and the Father are one. And before Abraham was, I am. And Jesus was either who he said he was, or he was a blasphemous egomaniac, the likes of which the world has never seen. Annas has good reason to be concerned about Jesus' disciples, too. Just a few days prior, it sure seemed like there were many thousands of, of disciples of Jesus who were welcoming him as the Messiah when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. So how many disciples does Jesus really have? And what does he plan on his disciples doing? And what has he been teaching these disciples? Perhaps Jesus was conveying, as many leaders do, one message in public, but then speaking a more dangerous message to his disciples privately, perhaps with the intention of putting in place a sinister plan to upset the status quo and to overthrow the powers that be. Annas would have wanted to question Jesus about all these things, and that's what he attempts to do with Jesus, who now stands bound before him. Only problem is, is Jesus is not having any of it. Observe Jesus' response to Annas in verse 20. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. And Jesus is absolutely right on so many levels. 
to say what he says here to Annas. In the first place, Jesus doesn't want to talk about his disciples at all in order to protect them. So notice how he keeps the focus entirely upon himself, saying literally in the Greek text, I myself have spoken, I myself always taught, and I myself spoke. Jesus is saying to Annas, any problem you have is not with my disciples, it's with me and what I have done. As for his teaching, Jesus says to Annas, look at the text again, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. And in saying this, Jesus is not saying that he never spoke words privately to his disciples or that he never taught them privately. He is simply saying that he didn't have one message for public consumption And then a different message that he would deliver privately to his disciples, a private message with the intent of promoting revolution. What Jesus taught privately to his disciples was of the same cloth of what he taught publicly to everyone, which means that all Annas would have to do is find anyone that has ever heard Jesus teach in any public setting And he would know the heart of Jesus' public and private teaching. Does that make sense? So all of this being true, Jesus looks at Annas and says to him in verse 21, look at the text, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. And that's his answer. Jesus knows that Annas is asking him about his disciples and about his teaching because he has nothing to indict Jesus with. Yet, sadly, he's already decided to kill Jesus, which makes his arrest of Jesus a travesty of justice, a violation of Jewish law, even in the way he's engaging Jesus now. And here in verse 21, Jesus is pointing Annas to normal legal procedure. And he's saying, in a normal situation of arrest like this, Annas, you should be telling me what the charges are against me. You should be bringing forth witnesses against me and allowing me to defend myself with my own witnesses and with my own testimony. Yet you have no charges to bring against me. And you are merely questioning me in the hopes of finding something against me to justify your arrest. How about you do your homework and question those who have heard what I spoke to them? They all know what I said. Well, how did Jesus' words go over with Annas? Actually, not well. Observe what happens in verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? Now, no officer in a situation like this would ever act on his own in striking a defendant like this. So this official's act was either prompted by Annas or this officer at least knew that it would meet with Annas's approval. The striking of Jesus by this officer is a scary harbinger of what is to come. 
this very evening. Imagine watching a court proceeding where an officer of the court is striking the defendant because he said something that the judge didn't like. This is what is happening to Jesus, and this is the first of many blows that Jesus is going to receive this night. The Greek expression that is translated struck here uh, probably in this case speaks of a sharp blow with the flat part of the hand. So this officer is giving Jesus an insulting slap across the face and saying, is that the way you answer the high priest? As if Jesus is the one who's guilty of the travesty here. Here he stands bound and arrested before Annas, and Annas doesn't have a single legal charge to bring against him. Instead, he wants to question Jesus in the hopes of finding something to justify his arrest. And Jesus responds by instructing Annas to follow the law and to lay out his charge against him and then investigate witnesses first. And in response, Jesus gets slapped in the face and rebuked. And don't you love the irony of this officer's question when he says to Jesus, is that the way you answer the high priest? Someone should say to this official, is this the way you should be treating the real high priest from heaven by slapping him in the face? Do you know who you're dealing with? Someone should ask Annas, is this the way you should treat the Son of God, the very light of the world, arresting him and binding him and questioning him in the hopes of justifying your predetermined conclusion to have him put to death? At this point, a lesser man in Jesus' situation, would have withered like a flower in the desert heat after being slapped in the face by an officer serving one so powerful as Annas. After all, we have Peter out in the courtyard withering before a slave girl. But here is Jesus in the presence of the most powerful man in Israel And Jesus has literally just instructed this man to do what he's supposed to do. Instead of trying to find self-incriminating evidence from Jesus himself. Jesus has been slapped and rebuked for what he has said. Yet observe his response to this official and to Annas in verse 23. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? Everything I've said is consistent with Jewish law, Jesus is saying. So if I have said anything wrong, then go ahead, testify of the wrong, the specific wrong that I have done. But if I have spoken rightly, as you know that I have, then why do you strike me? You'll be interested to know that the verb translated strike here is a different and a stronger word than the one used earlier. This word means to thrash or to beat. 
or even to flay the skin. And Jesus' use of this word indicates that this official hit him hard. But as hard as this man hit him, Jesus is not backing down. And evidently, Annas and this official have no reply to Jesus' challenge in verse 23, leaving them at their wit's end in terms of knowing what to do with Jesus. As the commentator Linsky says, Annas is at the end of his resources. The tables are turned. He sits there stupefied, unable to proceed. So what does Annas do next? Well, men, here's a life lesson, a life hack for all of you. When you are faced with a situation that is too hot for you to handle, what should you do? You should hand that problem over to your son-in-law, which is exactly what Annas does. Look at verse 24, where the text says, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. It's extremely likely that Caiaphas lived in a house that shared the same courtyard with Annas, in which case all that Annas is really doing here is sending Jesus across the courtyard on the property over to Caiaphas's place. And John is careful to let us know in verse 24 that Jesus is still bound, still being treated like a criminal, even though no charges have been brought against him. The fact that he is still bound lets us know that Annas is unchanged in his disposition toward Jesus as a man who should have been arrested, even though Annas has no charges yet to bring against him. Well, with Jesus in transit across the courtyard from Annas's place to Caiaphas's place, John changes the scene back to Peter, whom you will recall is out in that courtyard. And this leads us to the fourth development in John's account of Jesus being tried by his enemies and denied by Peter. Number four, Peter denies Jesus a second and third time. Peter denies Jesus a second and third time. You will recall from verse 18 that Peter was standing around a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest with other slaves and officers warming themselves by the same fire on this chilly April night. Well, John comes back to that scene in verse 25 and says, look at the text. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Matthew and Mark let us know that it was a girl who spoke on this occasion and that what this girl said to the others was she pointed to Peter saying, this is one of them. And also saying, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. According to Luke's gospel, one of these bystanders looked at Peter and said, you are one of them too. But here in John eighteen twenty five, 
We learn that others put the matter before Peter in the form of a question saying, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? If you read Matthew's account, you learn that at least one of the reasons for this question that they're now coming to Peter with was that they observed Peter's Galilean accent, which made them wonder if he was one of Jesus' disciples. As for how Peter responds to this question, John says here in verse 25, Peter denied it and said, I am not. Matthew's account lets us know that Peter would have followed these words up with an oath and then said, I do not know the man. I'm not his disciple. I don't even know who this man is that you're asking me about. And yet Peter is here in the courtyard of the high priest warming himself at 2.30 in the morning for no reason. Everyone saw right through his denial. In fact, this denial of Peter catches the attention of someone who was actually in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was arrested. And we all know that Peter kind of drew a lot of attention to himself in the garden, right? In fact, just a tip for you, if you, if you want to keep a low profile, uh, then don't go around cutting off the ear of a slave of the high priest and then immediately go hang out in the courtyard of that high priest. This is what Peter is doing right now, yet he doesn't want people to know that he is Jesus' disciple and that puts him in a real predicament here. Observe what happens in verse 26. One of the slaves of the high priest. Wow, wouldn't you know it? A slave of the high priest is here in the courtyard of the high priest. What are the odds? And it's worse than that. Look at the text. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, did I not see you in the garden with him? Notice the wording carefully here. This slave was in the garden where Jesus was arrested. This slave saw Peter in the garden, and he didn't just see Peter. This slave saw Peter with him. In other words, with Jesus. And this slave is asking this question as a pushback on Peter's prior denial that he was a disciple of Jesus. The slave is basically saying, you are his disciple. I saw you in the garden earlier this evening and you were with Jesus, weren't you? So admit it, you are his disciple, aren't you? Well, observe Peter's response in verse 27. Peter then denied it again. Peter then denied it again. John is being very gracious here in telling us merely that Peter denied being in the garden and that he denied that he was with Jesus, that he denied being a disciple of Jesus. But the truth of Peter's failure here is even worse than what John 
chooses to record. In fact, write down the reference, Mark 14, verse 71. Mark tells us that in response to this third inquiry, Peter, and I quote from Mark 14, 71, began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know this man you are talking about. And the Greek word that is translated curse in Mark 14, 71 is the word we get our word anathema from. This word means to declare oneself liable to the severest divine penalty of being accursed before God. And to swear means to promise with an oath of some sort, swearing by something that you would call to witness against you if, in fact, you are lying. So you put these two things together, and Peter, guys, is saying something like this. May I be anathema. May I be accursed. May I be damned to hell if I am lying to you when I swear to you by heaven that I do not know this man you are talking about. Wow. What a difference a few hours can make. Earlier this very evening, Peter felt so much love for Jesus that he promised Jesus that he would be willing to lay down his life for him. And now here Peter is putting his eternal soul on the line in order to disassociate himself from Jesus in the strongest possible way. He has gone from the heights of passion for Jesus to the depths of denying him and doing so in a way that puts his eternal soul in jeopardy. And remarkably, at the end of verse 27, we read the words, and immediately a rooster crowed. Mark's gospel tells us that the rooster crowed twice. The rooster crowing right here puts a timestamp on this very moment, letting us know that it is around three in the morning. And as soon as the rooster crowed, Jesus must have been in Peter's line of sight because in Luke 22, verse 61, we are told that, and I quote, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. Imagine what that moment of remembrance must have been like for Peter. Imagine what it must have been like for Peter to meet the gaze of of Jesus as Jesus looked at Peter in this very moment of his third denial. In Luke 22, Luke tells us that he, Peter, went out and wept bitterly, grieving over his failure, no doubt, grieving over his oath, and his curse, 
grieving that Jesus heard him in that most wicked moment of his life. Peter was merely on the periphery of the suffering that Jesus was enduring. And even there on the periphery, it was too much for him to handle. Not only did he fail his Lord, but he has now added to the suffering of his precious Lord. Jesus had plenty of enemies who wanted him dead this night. But with disciples like Peter, who needs enemies, right? Peter had to have been thinking something along those lines. Peter went out and wept bitterly, no doubt absolutely sure that he would go to his grave, a ruined and broken man, and have nothing but anathema in hell awaiting him for his sin. At the other end of the spectrum, let's ponder what this moment reveals about Jesus. Earlier this evening, Jesus had told Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed. And now it's happened exactly as Jesus predicted. Clearly, John is telling us this story because he wants us to know that Jesus knew Peter's failure before it happened down to the second. That's how well Jesus gets us. That's how well Jesus knew Peter. And yet knowing all of that in advance, Jesus had chosen Peter to be his disciple. He had washed Peter's feet and loved Peter in a thousand different ways. He cherished Peter as a gift from the Father to him. And he told Peter that he had great plans to use him on the road ahead, even knowing of this moment of failure. Jesus was not surprised by Peter's threefold denial of him. He knew it was going to happen. And Jesus knew that in about 60 hours, six zero hours, he would be appearing to Peter after his resurrection and forgiving him of his sin and bringing pardon, sweet pardon to Peter's conscience and lifting Peter from the ashes of his failure to be a champion for him. As the commentator D.A. Carson says, this is not Peter's final scene. As serious as was his disowning of the master, so greatly also must we esteem the grace that forgave him and restored him to fellowship and service. And that means that there is hope for the rest of us. Amen? Speaking of the ashes of Peter's failure, you will notice that Peter's denials happened around a charcoal fire, which John tells us about in verse 18. Apart from Christ's merciful intervention, Peter would forever thereafter associate the sights and the sounds and the smells of a charcoal fire with the worst failure of his life, a failure in which he placed his soul under anathema in order to deny knowing Jesus at all. But thankfully, 
Peter's threefold denial around a charcoal fire is not the end of his story. For the true believer, our sins against God are never the end of the story, right? If you keep reading John, you will learn that Jesus will go on to die on the cross for Peter's sins and for our sins, shedding his blood upon the cross to provide Peter and us with the atonement that we need for our sins against God. And then if you keep reading John's gospel, you will find that Jesus is raised to life again and appears to Peter and to the other disciples And guess what else Jesus does after his resurrection? There's one more mention of a charcoal fire in John's gospel. And it's the charcoal fire that Jesus builds for Peter and for the other disciples on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you can read about that charcoal fire in John 21 verse 9. And on that charcoal fire, Jesus cooks Peter and the other disciples some breakfast and nourishes them. And it was around that charcoal fire that Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? It was around that charcoal fire that Jesus gave Peter three chances to profess his love for him. It was around that charcoal fire that Jesus received those three professions of love from Peter as he uttered them to Jesus. And it was around that charcoal fire that Jesus gave Peter a threefold recommissioning to the ministry of taking care of his sheep. So you know what is more powerful than Peter's three denials? the love of Jesus. You know what is more powerful than the anathema that Peter spoke upon himself when he denied knowing Jesus? The blessing of Christ that superabounded toward him in a way that overwhelmed his sinful failure with grace. You know what's more powerful than the death that Peter deserves for his sins the life of the resurrected Lord Jesus who died for his sins. And you know what's more powerful than your sins? Jesus. This is the power of Christ that is greater than all of our sins. Peter said, may I be anathema if I'm lying when I say I don't know this man? Yet Jesus willingly experienced anathema at the cross so that he might deliver Peter from the anathema that he deserved and then transform Peter into a new man who loved Jesus with a love that was hotter than any charcoal fire. And this is why Peter didn't seem to mind the story of his sins on this night being told for all the world to read in all four gospels. Tell the story of my sins on that awful night, Peter would say. Throw me under the bus if you want and tell the world of my failures. I want people to know how amazing of a savior Jesus has been to me 
and can be to them too. And may that be our attitude as well. Finally, uh, can we appreciate at least one element, I think, of genuine truth involved in what Peter is saying in his third denial? When Peter, according to the other gospel account, says, I don't know this man, I think at least partly Peter is speaking from a genuine place of truthfulness. Yeah, he's being evasive, but he's coming also from a place of truthfulness. Oh, a week earlier, he thought he really knew Jesus. And he thought Jesus was coming into Jerusalem to come into his kingdom that would be established. And Peter was excited. But instead, Jesus is letting himself get arrested. And he wouldn't even let Peter protect him with a sword. And instead, Jesus allows himself to be brought into the custody of evil men. Seriously? So I am sure Peter felt in this moment like, I don't know this Jesus at all. Now, he should have if he had been listening to Jesus as he foretold of this moment, but he wasn't listening. And so he didn't know this Jesus like he should have. Peter knew his own vision of Jesus. But Jesus has shattered what Peter thought he knew about him. And this shattering of what he thought he knew about Jesus needed to happen to make way for Peter to discover that Jesus is a far greater Messiah than Peter could have ever imagined. A Messiah who lets himself be arrested and killed and buried. And then on the third day, he is raised from the dead and ready to give Peter the pardon and the forgiveness that Peter's soul most needed. A Messiah who will then ascend to his father's right hand so that from that place of authority and power, he might give salvation to sinners like Peter and like you and me who come to him in brokenness and believe in him. And this greater Jesus is going to transform Peter into a fearless, forgiven man standing before multitudes in the book of Acts. This greater Jesus will transform Peter into a faithful man who's going to keep on testifying of Jesus even after being threatened by powerful people and told to stop. This greater Jesus will transform Peter into a reliable man who will rejoice whenever he is counted worthy to suffer for Jesus and who will one day die as a faithful martyr for this Lord whom he loved. Why did Peter become all of this? Because Jesus is that good. Because Jesus is that powerful. Because Jesus saw to it that Peter's sin would not be the end of his story. And in the lives of all of us who believe in Jesus, Jesus sees to it that our sins are never the end of our story either. Amen? If you're here this morning and you have never believed in the Lord Jesus, 
What is not to love about a savior like this? The way he was with Peter, he would be delighted to be with you. I plead with you to run to Jesus today. Believe in him and call upon his name. And if you do that, I can assure you that your sins, however great they may be, will not be the end of the story. Instead, his grace will be. Let's pray together. Lord, in this passage, we see your incredible, perfect faithfulness and woven around the narrative of that faithfulness that we see in you, we see the unfaithfulness of Peter and the unfaithfulness of us all, including me. I too have denied you, Lord Jesus. Every time I have disassociated myself from you, In order to achieve some sinful or selfish purpose, I have denied you. And I am so thankful, Lord, that you refuse to allow my sins to be the end of my story. And all of us in this room who know you feel that same gratefulness to you. You are a wonderful, beautiful Savior and Lord who uses your authority and your power with such gracious purpose to bring forgiveness to sinners to deliver sinners from the anathema that they deserve and to transform them into people that begin to resemble you more and more. And one day we will stand before you in glory and we will be like you because we will see you as you are. And all the praise and all the glory will redound to you forever. You are our Savior, you are our God, and you are this good. And this gracious to condescend to give such mercy and grace to sinners such as we are. Oh, Lord, if there's any here today that have never found themselves in your sweet embrace, having been pardoned for the sins that they have committed, bring them to yourself this morning. They might delight to repent of their sins and choose you rather than their sins and call upon you to be their savior. And may you so love them as you did Peter and so many of us in this room that they would love you with a love that is hotter than fire. This is our Savior whom we can look to and walk with each day and be transformed by. This is our Savior that we get to go out today 
and through this week and to tell the world about. Help us to be faithful to make you known, Lord Jesus, to a lost and a dying world, for you are worthy. And we commit ourselves to you and ask all of these things in your precious name. And all God's people said,